together. Gracious Lord, thank you for that truth that we can sing. You are right in your way. You are good in your wisdom. You are righteous in your judgments. God, help us to know that, to see that, to believe that, to trust in you this day and every day. God, we pray that you would move in power in these days, that you would uh, make us more like Christ, that you would speak now clearly to us through your word. Lord, we pray that your spirit would have his way among us, that we again would think clearly and rightly about who you are, about what you have called us to be and to do in this time that you've entrusted to us. Father, we love you. We rejoice to be your people. Meet with us now. Guide us. Direct us. We pray this all in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen. If you would please be seated and open in your Bibles once again to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation chapter 8. And as you turn there, let me remind you that the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, ends with the wonderful account of the life of Joseph. Joseph. You remember Joseph, don't you? Joseph hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, taken down to Egypt, falsely accused, thrown into prison, and yet gloriously and wonderfully preserved by God. And ultimately, Joseph was, as you know, he was set free. He was elevated, promoted by Pharaoh himself to lead and to rule in Egypt. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. What, what man meant for evil, God would work and would use to accomplish great good. And by God's grace, Joseph was a wise, shrewd, discerning leader whom God used to provide for his family, to provide for his brothers and for their families, to provide for the nation of Egypt as a whole during a time of terrible famine. And yet, of course, the story does not end there. Everyone does not live happily ever after, because after Joseph dies, the children of Israel, they remain in Egypt. And we are told in Exodus 1.8 that there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And this new king, this new Pharaoh, grew to both fear and hate the children of Israel. He enslaved them. He brutalized them. He murdered many of them. He forced them to work in misery, all to serve his selfish purposes. And once again, what man intended for evil, God would ultimately use to accomplish good. And God would do this by sending Moses. God would call and commission Moses to go back to Egypt to help rescue and to deliver his people. And when God first revealed himself to Moses, this is what God said to him. This is what God said to Moses. He said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry. Because of their taskmasters, I know their sufferings and I have come down. I have come down to deliver them. And later, when Moses showed up in Egypt, he would say to Pharaoh, the Lord says, the God of Israel says, 
let my people go. And do you remember the first thing that Pharaoh said to Moses? Do you remember the first words out of Pharaoh's mouth to Moses? It's this, quote, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. And if Moses was paying attention, and I suspect that he was, this response did not surprise him. Because God had told Moses back in Exodus chapter 3 saying, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled. Compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And indeed, brothers and sisters, God's word was fulfilled. God struck the land of Egypt. He brought destruction and devastation to the people and to the land. God would answer. God would answer Pharaoh's question. Who is the Lord? Why should I obey Him? Why should I listen to Him? Pharaoh, pay attention. Pharaoh, listen and learn. The Lord is the great I Am. He is the God who was, the God who is, the God who always will be. The Lord is the one who knows what you've done. He's seen the affliction of His people. He hears their cry for help. He knows all about their suffering. And He has come down, Pharaoh. He has come down to deal with you. You and your hardened heart will see the mighty hand of God. Your water will be turned into blood. Disgusting frogs will soon cover your land. Annoying gnats will cling to you and to your animals. Countless flies will swarm your houses and your palaces, your livestock, your horses, your donkeys, your camels, your herds. So many will die by the hand of God. Painful boils will break out on you and your people. God will rain down massive hail on your land. People and animals will die, Pharaoh, if they don't take cover. Locusts will then infest your land. They will eat your plants and your food and your trees. And then darkness. Darkness in the middle of the day. A blanket of darkness will cover your land. God will simply turn out the lights. It will be a darkness so deep you can feel it, Pharaoh. And then death. The death of the firstborn. God will strike down the firstborn throughout all the land of Egypt. Who is the Lord that you should listen to Him? Who is the Lord that you should obey Him? He is Yahweh. He is the only true King. He is the Maker of heaven and earth. He is the sovereign ruler who rules over you whether you acknowledge it or not. He is the one who does what is right and just. He is the one who will not turn a blind eye to your sin and to your wickedness. Pharaoh would see the judgment of God and and. Pharaoh would see God's grace and kindness displayed to his people because while there were countless flies in the land of Egypt, 
There were no flies amongst the people of God. There was no swarms of flies there. While the livestock belonging to the Egyptians died, the animals belonging to Israel were just fine. While while hail fell in Egypt, bringing death and destruction, no hail where Israel lived. While there was darkness throughout Egypt, There was light in the land of Goshen. There was light where the people of Israel lived. They had no problem working on their tan in the bright Sunday while Egypt was in darkness and while God struck down the firstborn throughout the land of Egypt, the Israelites were covered and protected by the blood of that first Passover lamb that God told them to put on their Doorpost. God, listen, God made a distinction. He made a distinction between His people and those who stood in opposition to Him. We see that when God comes down, He comes down to both bring judgment and to give grace. To show His righteous power and to demonstrate kindness and favor to His people. Now, you may hear that and say, That's all well and good, but we're a long way from Revelation chapter 8, aren't we? I mean, maybe the stress of the upcoming wedding with Maddie's wedding, maybe it's getting to Pastor Chris. I mean, it's just less than two weeks away and maybe the stress has... He used to be a nice man until he lost his mind. Well, I, I don't think so. I don't, at least not yet. Here's the point that I'm trying to make. Please note this on your outline. Here's what I want us to see and understand this morning as we come to Revelation chapter 8 is that God has not changed in His character and nature. God remains true to Himself. God remains committed to what is righteous and good. God remains attentive to the cries of His people. He remains mighty in power and judgment. He remains steadfast in love and faithfulness. And God remains passionate for His glory. Passionate for His glory. The point is God heard and responded to the cries of His people who were suffering in Egypt. God saw the wickedness and the evil that was being done to them. And when the time was right, when the time was right, God acted in decisive judgment and deliverance. And the connection that I want us to see in this is that what God did in showing His righteousness and judgment on a smaller, more localized level in Egypt, I think Revelation 8 shows us that He will one day do something similar to this, but on a global scale. And again, I think we see that powerfully pictured and demonstrated here in Revelation 8. And listen, this is big news. This is, this is important news. I dare say this is even bigger news than Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey maybe liking each other. I mean, it's that, it's that level of big. And so to prove that to you, to emphasize that, to convince you of it, look again at verse 1. Revelation 8, verse 1, the first verse that we read, tells us this is big news. Verse 1 says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Please note it on your outline. For the first, and as near as I can tell, the only time in the book of Revelation, heaven goes silent. Heaven goes silent. 
Now, before we delve into this, remember where we are. And and believe it or not, this short recap is, I think, going to helpfully explain this silence here. Remember where we've been. John has been shown into the throne room of heaven in chapters 4 and 5. John has heard the worship of heaven. John has seen the Lamb, the, the Lamb who appears slain, but who is standing, who is declared to be the Lion of the tribe of Judah. John has seen this Lamb come and take the scroll, this scroll containing the seven seals, this scroll that outlines and activates God's plan for judgment, for making all things new. Then in chapter 6, John witnesses the Lamb opening the first Six seals, just the first six seals, and they are staggering. They are awesome in their nature and scope. There is war, destruction, death, famine. John sees many people still trying to hide in their sin and to harden their hearts against God instead of seeking mercy and grace in Christ. And then, in chapter 7, instead of the seventh seal being opened we get our first of three heavenly interludes. Interludes that show us the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, the safety and the comfort of God's people as the continued strength and radiance of God's glory is made known. And so now, as you would imagine, as we come to chapter 8, we still have a seventh seal that needs to be opened. And it is opened. And and what we're going to look at today The seventh seal is opened. And you might be thinking, well, that's wonderful news. Let's wrap this bad boy up. I mean, we've got seven seals and we've come to the seventh seal. This book should be coming to an end very soon. Not quite. Because contained within this seventh seal is a lot. It's It's a lot. There are seven trumpets. Seven trumpets that announce and reveal God's righteousness. These trumpets warn. They warn. They call people to repentance. And then, from the seventh trumpet, we will see it comes seven bowls to be poured out. Seven expressions of God's wrath to be displayed. And listen, when the seventh bowl is poured out, God will bring this outpouring of His wrath to completion. Here's what we'll eventually someday read in Revelation 16, 17. It says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. It is done. It is done. And believe it or not, this is good news. This is good news. It, it, it teaches us. It reminds us. It shows us that things will not just continue on in this wrecked and fallen condition as we see things today. Wickedness, injustice will not win the day. God sees. He hears. He knows. He will bring His plan to completion. And so, in light of all of this, do you now see why there is silence in heaven for about 30 minutes as this seventh seal is opened. This seventh seal that that gives rise to seven trumpets and then to seven bowls that bring God's wrath to completion. It is stunning. It is awe-inspiring. And heaven is silent. Heaven is silent as it looks into this seventh seal and all that is about to come from this. And you've probably experienced things like this before. You've You've gotten news 
that when you hear it, you don't have a lot to say. It stuns you. It shocks you. It gives you something to think about. It leaves you speechless. Sometimes, I think what we see here, sometimes the best way to worship God is to stand in silent reverence before Him. Sometimes the best thing that we can do is to stand in silent reverence before Him. And heaven does that for about 30 minutes. About 30 minutes. And then, verse 2 happens. And we see not a picture of immediate judgment, not a picture of, of, of an immediate trumpet, but now we see a picture of prayer. Look at verses 2 to 5. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Please note it on your outline. We see that the prayers of totally normal, totally normal, faithful Christians are linked to and interwoven with the plans and the judgments of God being accomplished. I mean, God, He is seen here as moving and acting in response to the prayers and the cries of His people. Our prayers that are offered in the name of Christ that here are pictured as being mixed with incense and purified. They, they become a pleasing offering before our Father. Our Father who loves His children. Our Father who invites His children to come to Him and to speak with Him and to share what is heavy on their hearts and minds. These angels, they do not begin to blow the trumpets until these prayers come before God. Uh, this is very, very specific in this vision that, that John sees. The trumpets are not blown. Or rather, I should say, they are blown in response, in part, to the prayers of God's people. It is, as Leon Morris writes in his commentary, he says this, prayer is not the lonely venture it so often fills. There is heavenly assistance, and our prayers do reach God. The prayers of God's people play a necessary part in ushering the judgments of God. And I, I think he's right. And we should recognize this. We should understand that prayer is a necessary thing. Prayer is necessary. It is necessary. It is vital. It is essential. It is not secondary. Why? Because God ordains the means as well as the ends. And God chooses to work through and to hear and to answer the prayers of His people. This scene that we see here, it should remind us of something. It should remind us. It hasn't been that many weeks that we were in chapter 6. It should remind us of something that we saw in Revelation 6 verse 9 where we saw believers who had been martyred for their faith. 
And they were, they were praying and they were calling out to God and they were saying this in Revelation 6, 9. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And this is, it's similar. Remember what we talked about earlier in Exodus with Moses, with God hearing the cries of his people. This is similar to what we saw in Exodus. God hears the cries of his people in slavery and he comes down at the right time in the right way to deliver his people. And here in Revelation chapter 8, verse, sorry, chapter 8, verse 5, we now see an angel that takes fire from the altar where these prayers are being offered and he throws it to the earth. He throws it on the earth. And then from that come thunder and lightning and rumblings and an earthquake. Meaning what? Meaning judgment is coming. In fact, judgment is now here. And these trumpets, again, they will serve as a message, as a warning, calling people to repent, calling people to forsake their way and to find safety in Christ, who is the only way to life and to peace with God. And so, what we see here is that God now provides seven trumpets to seven angels. Seven angels who stand in his presence, we are told. These are angels who stand ready and willing to do whatever God commands. And in the remainder of chapter 8, we will see the first four trumpets. Okay, chapter 8, that's all you're going to get this morning. Okay, you ain't getting seven trumpets, you're getting four. Okay, you've got to come back for the rest of the trumpets, and here's when you got to come back. In chapter 9, we will see trumpets 5 and 6. All right, so you got to wait for chapter 9. Spoiler alert, I know that's worth crying about. I, I totally get that. Um, you got to wait a couple weeks until we get to trumpets 5 and 6. It's going to be chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, we don't get the last trumpet. In fact, we get our next heavenly interlude. And that's a wonderful thing. And then, not till the end of chapter 11, that's when you're going to get the last trumpet. That's when you're going to get the seventh trumpet. Now, you may hear that and say, well, I don't like that very much at all. That seems way too spread out. I want all the trumpets right now. Well, that's not the way it works. That's, that's not how it works. God has a purpose and a plan for laying out the book this way. And there's a reason why you have to wait. There's a reason why you don't get the seventh trumpet until the end of chapter 11. And, you, and when we get there, you'll find out what that reason is. But for this morning, we will see four trumpet judgments sounding one right after the other. And these trumpet judgments deal so much with the natural world, with the blessing that we experience because of God's grace and goodness as seen throughout creation. So, with that in mind, look at verses 6 and 7. Here's what we see. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Noted on your outline, here we see trumpet number one. We see a third of earth's vegetation destroyed. Here, basically, God removes the blessing of a third of earth's vegetation. 
In other words, it will be a sad earth day that year as God uses hail and fire and lightning to destroy many of the plants and the vegetation and the crops that we enjoy on earth. It's interesting that here John also sees blood as mixed in with this judgment. Verse 7 says that there was hail and fire mixed with blood. Now, it could be that God will actually rain down blood on the earth on those who killed his people, or this could indicate that this judgment will result in blood, meaning in the loss of life, as many people and animals die because of the fire and the hail. Either way, this is most likely part of what the prophet Joel saw as he looked forward to, as he heard the word of God in Joel 2.30, and he recorded God's word, which says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. So, just as God rained down hail on Egypt, I think he will do so again on a global scale. Just as God removes so much of the vegetation and the crops from the land of Egypt, he will do so again on the earth. And when we consider this, when we consider things like this, and this will kind of be a recurring theme as we go throughout these trumpets, it's easy for us to see something like that and hear something like that and say, that's not fair. I don't like that very much. I wish that God wouldn't do that. And it's easy for us to forget that this earth actually belongs to God. It does. It actually belongs to him. We are stewards of the resources that God has entrusted to us on this planet. But this earth, it belongs to God. And God has the right to do with every blade of grass with every tree, with every shrub, God has the right to do whatever he jolly well wants to do with all of it. And here, in judgment, God chooses to remove a third of it from his rebellious creation. It's mercy that he doesn't take it all. It's mercy that he takes, just strikes a third of it. It's his right to do that. Next, look at verses 8 and 9. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Again, noted on your outline here we see in trumpet number two, a third of the sea becomes polluted and contaminated. God brings destruction to earth's vegetation. Now he brings destruction to the ocean. John sees something like, it's not a great mountain. It is something that looks like a great mountain burning with fire. Now, what is this? We cannot say for sure, but I appreciate Simon Kistemacher's comments on this. He writes, this is a calamity that defies description. An enormous mountain set ablaze and hurled into the sea. It may be compared to a meteorite of extraordinary proportions that upon entering Earth's atmosphere is like a blazing fire. When it plunges into the sea, it causes a tremendous tidal wave that sweeps away coastal cities with untold loss of life. And again, here uh, we see a mention of blood. Verse 8 emphasizes that a third of the sea became blood. 
It could be that as God transformed the water of Egypt into blood, that God does so again here with a third of the ocean. Again, this could also be a reference to the extreme loss of life, to the animals, to the sea creatures, to the people that would most likely die in such a catastrophic event. Here, John also mentions that he sees a third of the ships on the ocean that are here destroyed. Interesting, in his commentary on Revelation, Amir Sarfati describes that according, and this is his data from numbers from 2016, that at any given moment, there are approximately 50,000 ships on the ocean. It could be that in one massive cataclysmic event, some 17,000 ships along with their crews, are destroyed. Again, brothers and sisters, God has the right to do as He pleases with His ocean. God can give, God can withhold blessing from His rebellious, from His defiant creatures as He sees fit. Next, we read in verses 10 to 11. The third angel blew his trumpet, And a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Please note it on your outline. We see trumpet number three. A third of the fresh water on earth is here ruined and made bitter. God destroys a third of earth's vegetation, a third of the ocean, Now, a third of the fresh drinking water. And again, here, John, he sees something that he struggles to define exactly. He describes it as a great star, something that is blazing like a blazing torch, uh, possibly another meteorite, another asteroid, and it seems to dissolve or dissipate as it falls on a third of the rivers and and a third of the springs of water. And here, John also tells us that he hears the name of the star, and it is Wormwood. That's, that's very interesting. Wormwood is the name of a bitter-tasting plant that grows throughout the land of Israel. And the name here of the star reveals the effect that this star will have on much of earth's fresh water. What does it do? It makes it bitter. It makes it undrinkable. It ruins it. And as a result, we are told many people die. Now, throughout these trumpet judgments, we have been emphasizing the fact that this earth, it belongs to God. He has the right to do whatever he wants to do with his creation. He is sovereign over trees. He is sovereign over grass. He is sovereign over crops and oceans and rivers and springs. And here we see something else. God is sovereign over human life. God is sovereign over human life. And when it ends. God does not owe us this physical life. He doesn't. God is not obligated to give anyone one more decade, one more year, one more week. God has the right to give life and to take life as he sees fit. And listen, God is right when he does so. He is right. God has the right to do it, and He is right when He does it. Why? 
because He is always faithful to Himself. He is always operating and speaking and acting according to His wisdom, according to His goodness, according to His judgment and His righteousness and His wrath. God has the right to do what He does and He is right whenever He does what He chooses to do. And here, God gives mankind a picture, a dramatic picture of the effects of sin. What are the effects of sin? Bitter. Sin is bitter. To rebel against God is bitter. To resist God and go your own way, that that leads to bitterness. God here, He gives foolish, hardened, sin-loving people bitter water to drink. This is the taste of sin. This is the reality that sin brings. This is the future of those who die without Christ. Wormwood, bitterness, death. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Today, as we read this text, it is a day to see sin for what it is. It is a day to see rebellion against God for what it is and for where it leads. But today is also a day to value and to cherish and to celebrate Christ and the free gift of His grace and the reality that He came in love Not while we were lovely, not while we were righteous and good, but He came while we were sinners to die for us, to redeem us, to take the curse and the bitterness that we all rightly deserve. We'll talk more about that in a moment as we come to the Lord's table to celebrate His covenant of life and grace that is found only in Him. But for this morning there is yet one more trumpet that we need to hear. Look again at verse 12. It says, And the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise, a third of the night. Please note it on your outline. Here we see in trumpet number four, a third of the brightness or the power or the influence of these celestial lights is taken away. And brothers and sisters, there there is no human explanation for this. Just like there was no human explanation for why darkness fell upon the land of, of, of Egypt when God declared that it would be so through Moses, but there was light in the land of Goshen where Israel lived. There's no human explanation for that. How is that possible? It's not possible except that God declares it to be so. Except that He makes it so for His glory and for His 
purposes. Here, John sees God as striking a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that everything is like, as John describes, it's like a third darker than it should be. The days are darker than they should be. Even the nights are darker. You say, isn't the night always dark? Yes, but now it's darker than it should be. It's like a third darker than it should be. This is so strange. This is so peculiar. What is God doing? What's the point? Remember what these trumpets are. They're a wake-up call. They are a warning to stop what? To stop walking in darkness. To stop pursuing spiritual darkness. To stop loving the darkness. The point is wake up and come to the light while there is time. The sun is setting. Come to Christ. Come to the true light while there is time left. Remember John 1, 4 said of Christ, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then John writes, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Christ, He is the true light. Christ will be victorious. Come to the One who is life. Come to the One who is both the light by which we see and the One that we need to see. Come to this One is the warning of this trumpet judgment. And listen, just to drive home the urgency of this moment, look at what we read next in verse 13. If you thought it was weird, it gets weirder. Verse 13, John writes, Then I looked and I heard an eagle, an eagle, crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Okay, noted on your outline. Here we see a flying eagle. What's the deal? This strange flying eagle, it warns, warns that things are about to get much, much worse. Yes, the hail was bad. The fire, bad. Destructions of the ocean, so much of the ocean, bad. The loss of so much fresh water, bad. Losing a third of our light was weird and bad. But there's more to come. There's, there's, there's more to come. Why? Why is there more to come? Because justice must be done. Justice must be done. And listen, God is the only one qualified to do it. God is the only one qualified to do it. The Lamb will be glorified in the display of His wrath as well as in the display of His love. So this flying eagle takes a moment between trumpets 4 and 5 to warn those, and the text is very descriptive on this, you probably noticed this, to warn those who dwell on the earth. Okay, earth dwellers. The the text is telling us something here. It's warning those who are citizens of the earth. They're not citizens of heaven. They are earth dwellers. Those who belong to this present darkness. He warns them of what is yet to come. Now, it could be that this flying eagle is actually one of the angels that is described in Revelation chapter 4. 
the fourth angel or the fourth living creature is described in Revelation 4, 7 as, quote, this is so interesting. It's described as an eagle in flight. That's weird. What do we see here? An eagle in flight. That is testifying and warning creation of what is yet to come. Now, you may hear that and say, but surely this is not this is not necessary. Surely everyone will repent. Everyone will get the message loud and clear when God brings this kind of devastation, when God allows this kind of destruction on the natural world. Well, not to rain on your parade, but when Pharaoh saw the mighty works of God, what did he do? He hardened his heart. When the religious leaders saw the miracles of Christ himself, when they saw the power of God on display right in front of them, countless miracles, what did they do? They hardened their heart. Sadly, we will see in chapter 9, so many will continue to harden their hearts in spite of the truth that is right in front of them. On a morning like this, we should remember Jesus' words in John 9, 4, where Jesus said to his disciples, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And brothers and sisters, remember this. Now that Christ is ascended into heaven... Now that Christ has sent His Spirit to live in us, His people, who are we? What are we? Jesus told us that we, we are called to be His lights now. We are called to be His ambassadors now. And so, and if you read the HSC Connection, or if you paid attention when Pastor Stephen was talking earlier, and you should always do that, but if you paid attention, then you know that we're going to take a two-week break between now and when we jump into chapter 9. We're going to take a two-week break from our study in the book of Revelation to consider our role in missions and to consider our role as a faithful ambassador for Christ. Next week, uh, Stephen mentioned this, next week on October 15th, we're going to have, and we're excited to have back with us, Michael Spencer. Michael devotes his time to equipping believers to be ambassadors for Christ, specifically as it relates to the matter of life, how we think about, how we engage with non-believers to help them see the value and the significance of life and what God says about that. You will be so I, you will, you be so challenged and encouraged and helped by this time. We're going to meet together in the Family Life Center at nine o'clock and then in the worship service, uh, Michael Spencer will be speaking again and then the following Sunday will be our Missions Emphasis Sunday. Um, we'll have Randy and Cindy Richner here along with Dan and Carol Cook to again be challenged to think about our role in missions, our role in being faithful ambassadors for Christ. And listen, in God's good providence, it happened here. And I praise God 
that it did. If for no other reason, then, then it gives me more time to try to figure out Revelation chapter 9. But that's the story for another time. That's not your problem. That's my problem. But in God's good providence, uh, it worked for us to take that two-week break here before we move into chapter 9. And listen, here's how we want to wrap this up and bring this to a close. As we think about this very thing, as we think about our role, our privilege to be ambassadors for Christ, we can only do this because of who we now are in Christ. You don't do this on your own. You dare not do this on your own. You do this by Christ's presence, by his spirit, by his grace, by his word at work in you and through you. We do this because Jesus first loved us. We do this because we who once were lost and trapped in darkness, hating what was good, hating what was right, God has done a work in our hearts to open our eyes, to allow us to see the goodness and the grace of Christ and to follow after Him. And so this morning, as we now come to the Lord's table, as we come to this celebration, we celebrate, we rightly celebrate who we are now in Christ. We rejoice, not in our victory, but in Christ's victory over judgment and sin and wrath. The fact that He took the wrath that we deserve for us so that we can say with Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. We treasure the truth that in Christ we are loved, we are accepted, we are secure in Him. We rejoice in the truth that the blood of the Lamb has been applied to us. That we are now free to walk and to worship in joy and in love. So I'll I'll pray and then music will play. Um, While you're, when you're ready, you can use that time to pray, to confess anything to God that you would like to confess Use that time to praise God and to thank God. And when you're ready, you can come to one of the tables uh, to get the elements and then we will partake together. And this morning, I do need to make a rather unusual announcement that I don't normally make this kind of thing. But we learned something this morning and it's that not all grape juices are created equal. And so if you have an allergy to artificial sweeteners, um, you want to use this one. Um, so uh, if you have an allergy to, uh, um, again, artificial sweeteners, use the table and the elements that are on the piano side, and the rest of y'all can use any of them, and that, and that is a great thing. But we know that some do have serious allergies to those, those kinds of things. So I will pray, and then when you're ready, you can come and get the elements, and then we will partake together. And this is, this is a time of celebration. It is a solemn time of celebration to again remember to rejoice in Christ. So let's pray, and then we'll celebrate together. God, thank you for the truth that we can consider. We thank you that you are wise and just. We thank you uh, that we can truly live out of the truth that we sang earlier, that whatever you ordain, it is right. It is right. It is what is ultimately good for us, and it is what will ultimately bring you glory. Lord, we pray that in these dark days that we would represent you well. 
we pray that we would live as ambassadors for Christ. God, I pray that we would live in such a way as we bring glory and honor to you, that we do not entertain sin, that we do not play with sin, but that we see it for what it is. We confess it, we forsake it, we turn away from it. Lord, we pray that even in these moments that you would bring to our hearts and minds anything and everything that we should confess to you and turn away from. And we pray that you would rightly be honored in this act of worship. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.